0: What's up, guys? If you're hearing a little bit of a different voice today, it's because Dan is taking a little bit of time off to go and get married and go off on his honeymoon. My name's Calvin. I'm the club head and partner at Cub Sydney. Podcasting is always something that I've really enjoyed and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to stepping into this role for a couple of weeks. Today, we have Sam Roby, one of the co-founders of Pure Capital. Sam shares what it was like starting a business at the age of 21 in a competitive industry. We discussed the finance industry in general in the current economy, the power of building relationships, ambition and where it stems from, and what it takes to stay motivated. Knowing Sam for around four and a half years now, it is without doubt that he is one of the most impressive young entrepreneurs I know. I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing his story. Enjoy the show. All right, Sam. Welcome.
1: Mate, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. How are we doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy. I'm healthy, so no complaints. Looking Yourself? good. Thank you. thank
0: you. Yeah, doing great as always. Coming up to the end of the year now. It's been a great year. So, no, great Great to have you here. Obviously, this is my first time hosting, and I believe this is your first time actually doing a podcast. Is that it correct? Is. It is. And uh, I think, obviously, I'm looking forward to it. We've known each other for quite a, quite a while now. I think it's been coming up in five years that we met, you've been a member at Cub. And yeah, I think in, in a lot of ways, we've we've been part of each other's journey for a while now. So I'm really excited to get into this. Um, wh- why don't we start off with a, a bit of an overview of, of your business and, and what you guys are up to now?
1: Mm-hmm. Mate, so Pure Capital, we're uh, an asset and equipment finance brokerage. We've just had our fifth birthday last week, actually, which is good. So just born sort of pre-COVID. Uh, mate, things are good. Business is good. Uh, we've gone through a lot of sort of cycles already uh, and sort of proven that we can trade. Trade through them really well. We're sort of growing as well. A couple of new staff members, uh, and just sort of seeing, I guess, what the next couple of years has in store. But keep on keeping on. I think think's the motto.
0: And how have you found? How have you found the market this year? Obviously, a bit of economic turmoil, interest rates rising. How have things been in your business?
1: It's different. It's still there's still certainly people out there that are transacting, and, and we sort of said to our team that you know there's 26, 27 million people in the country, and if we do 100 deals a month, we're doing well. So you don't have to be everyone for every everybody. I guess. But it's it's different. You do need to be a bit sharper, a bit more accurate and a bit more willing to do things that people aren't. So we've sort of, you know, we are 24-7 brokers now because if you aren't, someone will be. And there's sort of less to go around. So you do need to really sharpen up what you're doing.
0: Yeah, 100%. And it's a, it's obviously a competitive market. There's a there's a lot of you out there. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later and, and you know, talk a little bit more about the, the inner workings of the business in its current state. But why don't we go back to, to you know, your background and how you actually got to this place. Mm-hmm. What what were you like as a kid? You know, did you always have entrepreneurial tendencies? Were your parents in business?
1: I think probably like most members of CUB, I had the standard report card at school, you know, easily distracted, um, you know, distracts others. I was a decent student, but probably didn't apply myself as well as I should have, um, but always had an interest in, I guess, talking to people, certainly interested in money, uh, and I think... My parents gave me a really good upbringing in terms of pretty much everything was on the table. It was never a taboo subject. It was always long car rides to cricket in the morning with dad was always talking about economics or talking about, you know, the stock market. I think that gave me a a really big advantage, especially dealing with people now that are my age or or a little bit younger and they see you don't have that financial literacy. Uh, So I think that was a really important part of, I guess, growing up. And it probably led me to where I am now uh, in terms of dealing in money and dealing with people, uh, which is sort of my two favorite things.
0: Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think, I mean, I can definitely speak on that, you know, having been around you for a long time now, your financial literacy is probably better than, than most people I know. And, and, and how old are you actually?
1: Just turned 26. So yeah, so,
0: so 26 years old and now being in business five years. So that's obviously not the norm did you go to university, what, what happened like throughout high school, after high school, how did you transition from, I guess, being this kid who I suppose had some interest in, in finance, it sounds like, obviously was uh, ambitious to a degree from the get go, how did you transition into your first job in your career and then eventually into, you know, starting and, and running your own business?
1: So I think finished school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. A little bit lost, went to uni because that's what everybody did. Um, My dad was a doctor. Uh, So for him, that was the only path you took. Like you you finish school, you go to uni, you do your five or ten years and then you get a good job out the other side. But I think I I went for six months. I probably didn't do it the right way. You know, I would turn up, I'd go to class, I wouldn't study, I'd pass the test because they weren't that difficult in the first year. It was the same as school. But I wasn't applying myself and I wasn't happy. And... My parents actually moved house when I was about 17 and they ended up missing out on a house that we all really wanted. Um, my dad was negotiating with a real estate agent and thought he was negotiating against himself. Stopped, ended up losing over about five grand, I think, uh, on everybody's dream house. And they ended up moving somewhere else, which ended up being an apartment Who above a guy who owned a sister company to the first ever finance company I worked for. And I remember one day just talking trash in the pool to one of the boys and he was in there and he sort of overheard and turned around and and said, do you want a job? I I don't know what you do, but you're young, you're successful, you know, why not? And that started one day a week while I was doing uni, three days a week, uh, five days a week, switched to night uni and eventually got down the track and thought, you know, I don't need this. I don't need to go to uni at the moment. No one I work with went to uni. Um, you know, if I really need to go, I can, I can go back later on. I I, I have, it wasn't because I wasn't intelligent enough. I think it was because it just was boring and ended up doing that. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Was there for three years. And then they made a few changes to the contract structure, which saw a lot of people leave. And me and my two business partners now basically looked at each other and said, you know, why not? Why don't we go and start our own thing? There's no barriers to entry. Really. We have the relationships. We have the skills. We've been trained really well. You know, why don't we have crack?
0: And what is it when, you know, in those early days when you started working in the, in the initial business, what was it that, that attracted you? And, and I guess to further that point, did you feel like when you found yourself in an environment where you were around people, you were selling, you were dealing with finance, that's when everything kind of clicked for you and you were like, okay, this is, this is my calling, this is where I belong?
1: Yeah, I think in the early days it was very fast paced. Uh, which I like. There's sort of always something happening. Every day was different. Every hour was different almost. And it had a really good mix of attention to detail and sort of written and communication skills as well as just raw sales and cars, which I also Mm -hmm. love. So it was sort of a really nice mix and blend and a really good young company where everybody was pushing each other, everybody's hustling. And it was sort of probably the first time that I'd really seen directly you get out what you put in which I think sometimes through school, sometimes through uni is a little bit difficult to Mm -hmm. see. but when you actually get in that environment and obviously commission based and, you know, you can work as hard as you want. Uh, And I think that was a really good framework for me to apply myself and, and just really have a go.
0: Yeah. And I think that's obviously the most attractive thing about anybody in sales is that, you know, the reality is it's, as you say, it's what, what you put in, you get out, it's uncapped potential. And I think, when certain people find themselves in that sort of environment, uh, you know, I'll speak on myself in, included, um, yeah, the potential is kind of endless and, and it feels like that's where you kind of, that, that's where you want to be. Um, and so how old, how, how old were you when you, when you first actually decided to go off on your own? Uh, 20. 20? I would have been, yeah. 20. And your business partners were a bit older than you?
1: A little bit, yeah. They're about five or six years older, um, at the moment, but it was a really good mix. Again, I'm, I'm really lucky. And we were talking about this before we started. I think one of the the really nice things about Cub for me is that no one ever treated me as a kid. No one ever, the age was literally just a number. It was never anything else. And it was sort of, that to me was really welcoming. Uh, and I think it's been really important throughout business that no one's ever seen me like that. It was always, you're an adult, you're doing what we're doing, let's treat you as such. And I think that was super important as an education piece early on in the business.
0: And, and why do you think that is? Because like you said, we were talking kind of you know, before this, and and you kind of are of the opinion that the credit should go to everybody else for not treating you as a kid. But I actually think that you should give yourself more credit for not being treated that way. Why why do you think that throughout your career, you've never had to deal with that kind of imposter syndrome? You've always felt like you've been at the same level as everybody else you were dealing with, even at the age of 20, because that's not normal. That's not a normal thing. Um, Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what that looked like.
1: I think sport probably has a large part of it as well. I played a lot of cricket as a kid and you sort of, again, always around adults and always playing. Once you get out of the age group stuff, it's you're in an open playing field and it doesn't matter how good you are as a 17-year-old, if that bloke's 25 and you're playing in the same league, well, it doesn't matter, or if that bloke's 30. So you have to grow up really quickly, I think. And I think through school as well, um, again, always treated like an adult. Uh, my parents as well always did. So I think it came naturally coming into it and you sort of – you're forced to grow up as well when you start a business because you're just—you
0: don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. No, yeah, you well, get it's all to on you. Young. Right? Yeah, mm. it's it's all on you. And was there ever a point in that stage of your journey where you doubted yourself? Because I think you know when I'm listening to you and and knowing you for a while now, like in order to, I guess, interact with people the way that you've interacted with people. Um, you have to have that level of confidence and you have to back yourself to the nth degree. Otherwise, you know, you will fall on your face. Was there ever a point where you had that imposter syndrome or or you struggled with confidence?
1: I think sometimes I probably still do a little bit in the clubhouse when you, you're having a conversation with someone and you think there's no way I should be in this room at the moment. Um, you know, there, there are certain guys who have companies that are 20 times the size of ours that are just having a yarn because they want to talk about cars or they want to talk about whatever. I think in those ones you're always super – on the back foot, oh, what do I say? I don't want to embarrass myself. Oh, I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. So I think there probably, but I think in in the day-to-day of what we do, I think if you've done the work and, and you know your shit, it's sort of that's where the confidence comes from because you know that there's nothing they can ask you that's going to stump you. Mm. And it's sort of, yeah, if you've done the work, and I think that's that's the same in sport, it's the same in everything, if you've done the work, then you have the right.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. And, and as you say, you know, even in a kind of sales environment, if you can put yourself in a position where... Whatever questions being asked or whatever corner you're 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 trying to be backed into, you can work your way out of it. Um, then you do earn the respect from the other person, the, the person on the other side of the table, um, pretty quickly.
1: But mate, you're you're in a similar situation around sort of you know huge business owners uh, and really really impressive people all the time. How do you find it?
0: Yeah, in, it's interesting. I mean, I would say when I first landed at cub without doubt. I mean, the only, the only person that I had ever been around who was similar to the people that I'm now around all the time was my my previous boss. And he was someone that I held on a pedestal. He was somebody that I almost kind of idolized and, and looked up to in a big way. And so when I came to Cub, obviously found myself in an environment where everybody was kind of like that. And so that was very daunting to me. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a, a huge amount of imposter syndrome and, and often felt like I didn't deserve to be in the room with the people that I was in the room with. And I got a piece of advice by, you know, Steve Grace, who we both know very well. He said to me quite early on, why why do you feel that way when you've lived a life and you have a story that nobody else has, yep. um, regardless of your experience and, and, and how much you've done? Like there's things that you can bring to the table that nobody else can. And so you need to carry that. And literally it was like a flip of a, a switch and everything changed in that moment. And I think as time goes on, you know, like we were talking about before, when you start to to deal with people at a, at a certain level and you earn their respect through the work that you've put in, then your confidence then grows as well to the point where then you then feel like you deserve a seat at the table. And obviously that's kind of where I feel like I'm at now, but it, it takes, it takes a lot of time and work and effort. So yeah, totally kind of resonate with, with, with what you're saying there. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about, I guess, the challenges that you you faced in the early stages of your business. Obviously, you know, you've gone into a a finance business, you've kind of worked your way up a little bit, you've decided, okay, there's no kind of reason why we don't do this ourselves. but you're 20, you're 21 years old, you know, you've never done this before and you're a young guy. Talk to me about what that looked like and and the early challenges that you faced.
1: I think the early challenges we faced hold us in really good stead now. And we were talking to our staff about this the other day where, you know, in the first sort of six months, 12 months of business, you might only get three or four leads a month, which means you've got to run them as absolute best as you can. And and it's it's not good enough to sort of try once or twice and, and go, ah, this is too hard. And whereas now you might get, you know, 100, 200 leads a month, but if you still have that same work ethic, I think that held us in really, really good stead, which was a real problem at the start because you, you're wanting to move fast. You've just come off a salary. You have just come off as many leads as you can handle. And all of a sudden you're on your own. Mm. And I think something that we sort of made a call on really early was we're not going to do any marketing. We're not a marketing company. We're a relationship company. And what we're really good at is what we call handshake business. We're the guys you go have a beer with on a Friday. That's where we win business. And that doesn't work necessarily with all the marketing. So Mm. we're going to force ourselves to do this. We're going to have to go and make the calls. We're going to have to go and get in the mud. And... That was really, really difficult, especially as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old at the time. Luckily, I didn't look it. I think that's probably one of the best. I mean, I'm I'm five foot three, but (laughs) one of the best things I had was that I did look a bit older. I had a bit of a beard and I sort of knew I needed to play on that. And that, I guess, helped. But trying to get in front of of accountants of big mortgage brokers as a 20, 21-year-old is difficult because they've got to put their trust in you, but also the fact that they're giving you their clients. You know, it's all referral-based and- if they're really signing off to their clients that you're the best, that's a reflection of them, not me. Mm. And if I do a really, really bad job, they're the ones that are going to hear about it, you know? So trying to overcome that was difficult. And it's a, it's quite a competitive market. There's a lot there's a lot of brokers around. There's a lot of very good brokers around. And there is very low barriers for clients to switch as well. You know, there's, there's no reason not to go and get four or five quotes sometimes. And in that case, it becomes a race to the bottom. And I think it, again, something we did really well is if you look at it through the lens of, I'm still going to be doing this in 10 or 15 years' time. So it's not about today. It's not about tomorrow. It's not about trying to get this deal across the line at all costs. It's about what decisions can I make today when dealing with a client that are going to help me in the long run. And I think that helped a lot as well um, to sort of overcome that challenge. And I think something that we do really, really well is we still live by those rules. We haven't really changed. We've adapted in other areas. But the core stuff that got us to where we are today, we still do every day.
0: Yeah, and I think you see that as quite a consistent theme across the most successful people is they're always willing to get in the dirt. You know, I, I spoke about my kind of previous employer. I've seen it with Dan and, and obviously the team at Cub as well, is regardless of the circumstance and regardless of the, the kind of position you find yourself in as the leader, as the person who's who's dry the driving force behind the, the business you've always got to be willing to go back to your, your roots and get in the dirt. And I think that's something that's definitely consistent across the most successful people. Um, I want to break down a little bit, you know, about what you've kind of spoken about there um, both in, in a sense of, of the competition, because it is a very saturated kind of market. You know, there's a lot of brokers out there um, and, and segue that into your thesis around building relationships because Your competitive advantage is really the way that you're able to build relationships. So talk me through what that looks like for you. And I'd love to hear a bit more about your thesis around building relationships. Obviously, that's a huge thing for us. So,
1: Mm -hmm. I heard a quote probably when I was, again, 2021 starting out from a a big real estate agent in the US that basically said, people hate being sold to, but they love shopping with friends. And a lot of what we do, it is quite emotional, uh, especially people that are buying higher end cars. You no, know, this is stuff they've dreamed about for 10 or 15 years. This is not a financial purchase. This is pure emotion. And they want to be able to deal with someone who gets that and I think can go to that level with them. So for me, relationship building has always been about, first of all, as a client, your time is more important than mine. So I'll do things on your schedule, whether it's, you know, I took a call at 8 p.m. on a Sunday for a guy that was trying to do a deal because why not? You know what I mean? It's five minutes out of my day. What, what do I care? So I think it's it's always being available to people Um first of all, starts that sort of relationship, but also being able to emotionally invest with them, You know, whether it's going to the dealership to go for a test drive with them because they want that person there with them. You're not just a face behind a computer. You're someone that has gone through it with them. Leaves a lasting impact, I think, and people really appreciate that. And what we found as well is that the people that buy those sorts of cars, all their friends do as well, and they love having a guy So if you can do a really, really good job for one of them and you can really go to that level for them, they will go out of their way to sort of help you and get into their networks. And obviously as well, people that are buying this kind of stuff are very successful in their own right. They have to be in order to get there. So there's always stuff you can learn from them. And if you show a genuine interest in how they've got there, you know, why they've dreamed of this, why they want to do this, they will go out of their way to help you. So I think that was something that was really important for us, Uh, but also at the same time, You know, whether you're buying a a $600,000 supercar or I'm doing a deal for a guy today that's a a first-year kitchen apprentice buying Mm a $15,000 ute. And that deal is equally important to me because it's equally important to him. That's the biggest thing that's happening in his life at the moment. It needs to be the same in mine. And when you go back to what we spoke about before and you look at things through that 10 or 15-year lens of business, well, if I do a really, really good job by that guy now and, and really, again, treat him like an adult, treat him as one of my most important clients, Well, if he does really well in 10 or 15 years' time, what's to say he doesn't have 30 staff on the road? Mm -hmm. We're all buying utes. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and he's looking after you and he remembers who looked after him at the beginning. And that's another huge part of our business is, and a really rewarding part, when you help people, you know, maybe they're buying their first concrete pump or they're buying their first little excavator and you really make a difference in getting that deal over the line and helping them start their business, they're not going anywhere. You know, loyalty is a huge thing to most business people. And if you can you know, go out of your way to get the first one done, they're just going to keep coming back as they grow. And Mm. and for us as well, that's been looking through it through that longer lens. It's not about the transaction, it's about the relationship. And if you keep looking at every deal in that light, people will reward you in the long run. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a a pretty good way to run a business.
0: 100%. And I think, yeah, obviously to, to have that kind of foresight um, I think is is missed a lot of the time. You know, when people are looking for the kind of quick fix and and to do the quick deal, it's not the way that that things are built. Things are built over time. Patience takes its part in in everything. Um, and as you say, yeah, to have that kind of foresight to start small, but you don't know where that's going to go one day, or slash, you don't know who that person might know who they're going to push you onto. So, doing the right thing is always the right thing. I think at the end of the day, I think so. Um,
1: and there's there's also you know we always, we're we're big in the office in saying that the only way to guarantee you make nothing is to not do the deal. So the amount of deals that we will do for free because we have to, or because we're, you know, as bad as it sounds, we're undercutting someone else. But then you don't know who they know. You don't know who they're then going to refer you on to. And some of the best deals and best clients we have are deals that we've done for free the first time just to get them on the books. And then from there, they've done 15 transactions, 20 transactions. And it is so important for us that you just don't know what's going to happen. So you may as well write the deal.
0: Would you say that, I guess, there'd be a lot of times, because I've seen you navigate throughout the club, has there been a lot of times throughout your career where you've just built relationships with people in the upfront and you've then done deals with them far later down the line? You're always open-minded, you know, at club, you'll you'll go to an event, you'll be open to meeting everybody and anybody.
1: I think one of the best lessons I ever got growing up from my dad was that it's always better to be owed than it is to owe Uh, and you can never do too many favours for people. But at the same time... Uh, do something nice for someone just cause you can, you know, why not? Don't expect anything in return. And, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, that again, we can say about us. And I'd hope people could say it about me is that the amount of times we do stuff for people just cause you can, there's nothing on the other side of it. You know, we were talking the other day, a, a member asked uh, about a watch. He, he really wanted to get a watch, uh, really difficult to get. And I was lucky enough to have a relationship with the people that sell them. So I just said, mate, let's go. Let's book in the time. We'll go in and have a chat. Um, There's nothing in it for me, uh, but if I can help you get something that's really important to you, why not? You can never have too many friends. Turns out that guy's got 100 cars on the road and needs to refinance his entire fleet. But I would have done it if I did, even if that never came up because- you can never be too nice to people and you can never have too many friends. And you just, again, you just don't know what's going to come out of it. But even if nothing comes out of it, it's still the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there's a great lesson in that. I think a lot of people struggle with idea of relationship building and, and networking and how to navigate that environment. And the reality is serendipity is too big of a factor to discount. You love that and word. <laughs> I do love that word. That is my favorite word. I think everybody knows that. Um, but th- that's the truth. You know, The reality is serendipity, is it, it is too big of a factor to discount. And mm-hmm having the ability to build relationships with people at scale, you, you have no idea where those relationships are gonna go. And I think yeah, you're your your proof of that. Um I wanna get into I guess the idea of, of sales and selling a little bit. It sounds like from your point of view, you're not so much of a salesperson, but more so a relationship builder. Do you do you consider yourself a salesperson?
1: Yes, I, I think so. And I, I think there are a lot of different types of salespeople. Uh, And I think my sales approach is a lot more laid back. It's more, I'm gonna put all the information in front of you, you should want to deal with me, but if you don't, that's absolutely fine. I'm not gonna chase you, I'm not gonna be that guy that's harassing you on the phone. You know, if you don't wanna deal with me, as bad as this sounds, that's your loss. Unless you've got a really good reason not to. Uh, In some cases, the deal, you're just not gonna get a deal done. You know, sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes you haven't given it your best, sometimes you've missed something. but for us, especially being referral-based, most of the time you are kind of order-taking and you don't want to be pushing something onto someone they don't need. Because that, again, looking through that 10 or 15-year scope, it'd be really easy sometimes to push people into doing a deal that isn't right for them just because it helps my back pocket. It's not right. And you're going to go out of business pretty quickly because it's a small world and you know this sort of stuff gets out. So there's not a lot of selling that we do in terms of probably to the client, I guess. It's more about... I guess knowing when to be an order taker sometimes, you've got those clients that come to you. They know exactly what they want. They just need you to do it Mm -hmm. for them. So it's about knowing, I guess, that role. And then also knowing when people do need, you know, I guess to know all the facts. I guess if that's a sale, you know, putting it in front of them, putting all the perspectives in front of them they haven't considered and then letting them make the decision. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you make the decision for them, eventually that will come back to you in in a bad way. You know, something's going to blow up or something's going to get out or, you know, they're not going to give you the referral or something like that if you just try and push them into something. Mm -hmm. So I guess the sale for us is more about knowing when to lead from behind, putting everything in front of them, directing them in the the right direction and then letting them make the call. Yeah, the deal closes itself exactly. One hundred
0: percent. What about the relentless nature of the way that you operate? Because I I see you, you're probably on the phone more than anybody I know, Mm -hmm. you know, you've done well for yourself. Obviously you're still young. How do you continue to motivate yourself in a way that you're getting up early every day, you're going to work, you're answering every phone call, you're trying to do every deal that you can do. You're continuing to build relationships. Would you say that that's something that's just naturally inside of you and you don't know any other way? Or is there, is there, is there a reason that you keep doing that?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, Our great friend, Andy Herman, has a theory about ex-athletes and I guess athletes that have failed. uh, And I think I've definitely fall into that category. I've played played a lot of cricket as a kid uh, and probably only only in the last couple of years have realised that I just didn't do the work. You know, I was that kid at 14, 15, 16. That was probably a little bit bigger than everyone else. Again, funny now that I'm five foot three, but a little bit bigger than everybody else and could probably get by on raw talent. And then, as I said before, when you get into the stuff that's not age groups and everyone is as big as you are and everyone's as strong as you are, If you haven't done the work, that's when it shows through. So I think there's a little bit of a, I guess a chip on my shoulder now to not let that happen again. And sort of a, I guess almost an obsessive fear of being outworked. Uh, But also at the same time, I really love what I do. I I really am genuinely really grateful and really lucky to say that I actually really enjoy it. So if I'm, again, answering at a call at eight o'clock on a Sunday night when I'm making dinner, there's nothing else I'd actually wanna do anyway. You know, you get to talk to really interesting people, they're buying stuff that I'm really interested in cars wise. So it doesn't feel like work. But at the same time, you never want to be – and there's a, a really good football quote, I know you love your football, about, yeah, but can you do it on a rainy, cold Tuesday night in Stoke? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that dictates a lot of what I do. It's really easy to be motivated and, and really on the ball when things are going well or it's a really big deal or, you know, you're going to get something out of it. But when no one's watching, um, when sort of the, the, the spotlight isn't on, can you still go with the same work ethic? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's probably integrity more than anything, what you do when no one's watching. Um, so I think it's – for me, trying to give every single client the same level of service, regardless of what they're buying, that drives me um, because they, they deserve it Mm -hmm. really. And I'm really fortunate, you know, to, to love what I do, but also know that my clients are the reasons why I can do what I do. If I don't have any clients, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I I can't do all the things I love to do, all the things I'm really privileged to do. So if I slack off or I sort of get complacent with them, then it's not going to be too long until there's none of them left and I won't be able to do it. So it's sort of, maybe a little bit of a fear that it's all going to go away um, if I don't work as hard as I do to sort of a, that, I guess, innate desire to not be outworked again, to not go through that. And three, to deliver the service that everybody deserves.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've touched on there, like your reasons as to why you continue to do what you do every day. Do you know why you are as ambitious as you are? Do you know where your ambition comes from? I mean, I, I can speak on, on myself, I've analyzed a lot of this in myself. And I think for me, it's, it's two things. It's number one, gratitude to to my parents for bringing yep. me out of a country Absolutely. where things weren't good. They gave up a lot to get me here and give me an opportunity. And I think I have to take that opportunity, you know, w- w- with two hands and run with it. But the other side of that is, and I think this has probably come over time a little bit more is, is the belief in myself that I can. And I, I believe that if you as a, as an individual believe that you can go to a certain place and you don't give it everything that you can to get there, then, you know, when it gets to the end, you've, you've failed yourself, whether you can get there or not, the proof will be in the pudding. But when you have that belief, I think you have to give it a full crack.
1: Yeah. You're never going to fail if you try, right?
0: Correct. And so do you know why you're as ambitious as you are?
1: I think the reasoning's probably similar. I, I think twofold. One, I had, I think I had the world's greatest upbringing. Um, my parents are probably my best friends now, um, as sad as that sounds, but I absolutely adore both my parents, and I think they gave me the absolute best foundation possible. Um, you know, growing up, my dad was not an anaesthetist, very successful. At the same time, he was a global medical director of an, a global insurance company. Um, you know, so I've seen what it's like to work 100-hour weeks, to work 120-hour weeks, and I think wanting to, I guess, not let him down a little bit as well and, and show that, you know, everything you guys did for me growing up, I want to try and pay that back. You know, I, I want to show you that I haven't squandered the opportunities that you gave me. I think it's definitely one. And I think on the other side, I think you're exactly right. It's it's being able to look in the mirror and, and, you know, if you're the sort of person that looks in the mirror and goes near enough is good enough, it's not great, is it? Like, so I think it's, for me, it's the same as that. It's not leaving anything on the table. Again, it's really putting everything in. And I think if you, if you genuinely try as hard as you can and you put everything in, you can't lose,
0: you can't fail. Um, a hundred percent agree. Um, do you think you've, you've got a bit of a chip on your shoulder? Obviously when, you know, you spoke about your dad, successful, successful guy, you know, medical director, some people who come from that kind of background don't end up where you are. Is that a chip on the shoulder thing? Or why do you think, you know, is it, is it a sense that you feel like you need to prove you can do it yourself?
1: There's certainly never been any pressure put on, um, from home. There's certainly never been any expectation to do anything other than be happy, I think, which is, Really, really important, and again, really grateful for that. And I think it just comes from just not wanting to let him down. It's it's not even like a, a chip on the shoulder as to wanting to be as good, or or because I'll never, I never will be, really. Like it's it's a pretty high standard to set, but if I can go close, I'll be happy. And I know that he doesn't care. You know, if, if, if I really just try and apply myself and have a crack, that's all anyone can ever ask for. So I think the chip on the shoulder probably comes from not wanting to let him down, as opposed to wanting to live up to where they are.
0: Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a great sentiment. Um, I want to know a little bit more, obviously, you know, we've spoken about your kind of transition, going into a business owner environment, being very young. Now you're coming on, what, 20, 26, 27, get get, getting a bit older. Are you, are you finding yourself now in a position, obviously you've hired some people as well. Are you finding yourself now in a position where you're starting to be able to impart some of the knowledge that you've taken um, from your journey? And what is your thesis around leadership and and building a team now that you're doing it?
1: I think it's been a really interesting challenge that I guess the three of us probably didn't expect. Um, And the three of us know uh, where we are. and And I think we know what makes us tick and we're quite lucky in that regard. Whereas, and when you're running a sporting team, there's only one outcome. Everybody wants to win, right? And everybody's willing to put everything aside to do what is required. Whereas when you're managing staff, it's really different. It it is, I know what motivates me. I know what motivates my two business partners, really simple. It's quite difficult working out what motivates other people and trying to get the best out of them has been a challenge that I never saw coming. Uh, And I probably should have, that's, that's naivety, but that's been a really interesting sort of dynamic in the office lately. And it's on one side, it's, it's sort of it feels a bit wrong to sort of impart some life stuff on them because I'm 26. What do I know? But in terms of from a sales aspect, it's also been quite difficult because you forget, one, how much you know, I think. And it, it's for us, we're lucky that we've done this long enough. It's almost automatic and it's almost instinctual. Whereas a couple of the guys we've hired have never done this before. You know, one of them was a, an editor at The Australian. You know, what does he know about finance? So trying to explain the technical skills of it to him was really easy and he, he picked it up really quickly. But the instinctual nature of the sale, and how to, you know, hear what someone says, but what do they actually mean? What are they actually looking for? You know, what's really going to get this over the line? That's been quite difficult. So working on that and trying to f- fulfill that for them has been really rewarding, I think, and that, that will be something that continues to be a challenge but a really worthwhile challenge over the next couple of years. And it, if nothing else, it makes doing deals yourself quite easy because you're focused on trying to help other people. You go back to what's, what you know and what's easy and you kind of fly back through it. So that's been a really interesting dynamic that I guess I hadn't expected. Uh, and that is more of my role in the office at the moment is to sort of try and build those guys up and and help them through the day to day and help them I guess become the best versions of themselves. Not only as brokers but as people. You know, we it's such a cliche in small business, but we are a family. We are small enough and young enough that we really do care. And it it's funny, it, it's actually quite heartwarming to me when I see my guys out together on the weekend. You know, they actually like each other. They they want to spend time with each other, and they're really bought in and they're really loyal. So that's been a really really nice. Uh, dynamic, Mm. I guess. And it's, it's always fascinating to me to hear and hear it around Cub a lot. You know, the younger generation don't know how to work. Nobody wants to work hard anymore. Mm. And I think these boys do defy that trend, which is really good. And I love hearing that because also for me, still being young, looking at 10, 15, 20 years time, it's good to know that it's sort of, if people aren't willing to do the work now, and we are, that we're going to go miles ahead from them. So I guess trying to, and a bit like us, when we started trying to keep that trying to keep that momentum, trying to keep that fresh, that willingness to learn, the willingness to change, to adapt and grow is really important. And that's what we're trying to sort of instill
0: in everybody. I think you've touched on some, some great points there. We're in probably a similar position. How many you got in your team? Eight. Yeah. So I think I've got this six in mind now and it, it all is similar ages as well. Yeah. All similar teams, ages. Yeah. So, so it is interesting when you, you know, you start to, you start to understand people's ambitions, people's motivations, you can't expect people to, to want and think the way that you do all the time and, and, and you've got to be able to navigate that as a leader um, and try and get the best out of everybody. Uh, and I totally agree with you know, your, your, your kind of sentiment around people hanging out on the weekend and that kind of stuff. When you see your team getting as jolled and as close as that, I mean, the reality is that means you've, you've built a good culture and, and I think that's the most important thing that you can do um, as, a, as a leader and, and in business. What's next?
1: I think as dumb as it sounds, keep on keeping on. You know, we were talking about this before and and one of the goals we have every year is just to have the business at the end of the year. And I I think it sounds really simple and and really dumb, but, you know, running a business is not super easy sometimes. And I think if you can keep the business, every year if your goal can be to keep the business at the end of the year, keep surviving, keep surviving, eventually you're going to build this juggernaut that's unstoppable. So... I think for us, you know, we still don't do any marketing. We're still purely referral-based. I think we're up to sort of, you know, three and a half, 4,000 clients uh, in five years doing no marketing. So keep that going. And, you know, I've always been obsessed with real estate agents and real estate agencies, I'm sure you know. And I've always been fascinated by the way they run their companies and the way they run their businesses. And you look at it and in most of the top agencies, the guys who run the companies are still on the tools. They're still selling and they're just bringing people with them. And every year they might get a new associate or, New couple of associates and they build them up, and then they go out on their own in the company and they get their own associates. And all of a sudden, you know, if you can do that maybe every year or every eighteen months, in ten years' time, you've got a team of thirty or forty people who are all built the really right way. Your guys that were with you at the start and were loyal now have their own teams, and it's a really nice culture. It's a really successful culture, and everyone's moving in the same direction. And all of a sudden, you've got a really big sustainable business as well because you've grown at the right pace, not for growths, you know, growth sake, which I think can be really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So if we can just keep doing that, keep sustainably adding and adding. I think in what we do as well, it's it's really good that because most of the contracts we write are five year contracts, we're in our fifth year, all the first ones we wrote are rolling off. And next year all the second ones we wrote are rolling off. So you automatically get a few more clients, you know, your client base increases by 30, 40, 50% a year because people keep coming back. So it's a really sustainable way to grow without massively increasing your overheads, especially at the moment. You know, it, it is quite difficult out there for some people. And we're really lucky that we have really low overheads, um, and we can keep doing things in the way we're doing them. So I think mate, keep on keeping on, keep trying to slowly, sustainably add to the team, and just keep living by the values that we we do every day. Keep trying to do really good, really sustainable business.
0: I think that's a great great thesis on on business in general. It's a lesson that I know I know you know we talked to Dan a lot about the most successful businesses are really not the most innovative ones. They're not the ones who are going as quick and as hard as possible. They're just the ones that stand the test of time.
1: And they're the ones that don't get bored doing the simple things. I think it's, it's about not trying to be everything for everybody. Do what you do, do it really well and just keep doing it and don't get bored and that's the way forward.
0: So yeah, I want to get a little bit more into, I guess, the technicalities of, of what you do. Obviously, you know, you, you're a finance broker, you're an expert in that space. So someone comes to you, you know, they want to buy a piece of, of, of equipment or machinery yep. or an expensive car, watch, you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> what does that process actually look like?
1: So it's a little bit different depending on, I guess, the first breakdown is, is it income generating or is it not? So if you're buying a Lamborghini, for example, it's probably not income generating unless you're in a higher business. Or if you're buying a concrete pump, those are two completely separate deals, right? So if you're coming to me to buy, you know, the car of your dreams, the sports car, what would tend to happen is you and I are going to have a long chat about it, first of all, because I love them. You love them, clearly. So we're going to have a yarn about that. We're going to go through it all together. Um, you know, how are you specking it up? Are you buying it new? What do you reckon? Then from there, it's going to come down to, I guess, the, the numbers. What do you actually want to borrow? Do you want to put money in? How do you want to structure it? And what tends to happen in those circumstances is – Those people are usually quite busy. Uh, So what I'll say is if you want to jump on a three-way call with your accountant who's going to know your holistic position better than me and probably better than you, to be honest, let's do that. So we'll jump on a call. We'll go through, again, usually what the accountant wants uh, and usually what we can do are probably two different things quite often. So we'll find a way to kind of meet in the middle. We'll structure the deal with the accountant to make sure that it doesn't impede them doing anything and it also meets their, I guess, holistic goals and a holistic vision for the company's financials or the individual's financials. We'll go through that. We'll come back to you and put it in front of you, make sure you're comfortable as well Um, because the last thing you want to do is be buying, you know, a luxury asset and thinking about it every month. You want to not notice it. That's what we say to people. If you notice it, you you probably shouldn't be doing it just yet, right? So how do we structure this to make it best suited for you? Once we've done that, we'll gather all the documents. We'll sort of do a big write up on the story. Uh, We'll go, you know, two or three banks um, that are going to buy it. Uh, we'll put those in front of you, the pros and cons of every option. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, banks have different niches. You know, if you come to me and say, hey, I'm going to pay this thing out in two years' time. I I want a five-year loan, but I'm going to knock it over really quickly. Well, if I go to the bank that has the cheapest interest rate, but has the worst exit structure, is that really doing right by you? No. If I go to the bank, you know, that maybe has a half a point more expensive interest rate, but has no exit fees, I can show you the math of how far in front you're going to be, depending on when you pay that loan out. And I think that's We spoke about it before a little bit, the difference between being a broker and being a salesperson. It's not about doing the deal. It's about doing the right deal and what that looks like is different for different people. So we'll set that up, make sure you're comfortable. Uh, We'll then put it all together, be right up, send it into the bank. The bank will take a couple of days or however long they take to sign off on it. We will then speak to the dealer on your behalf or the seller, whoever that might be, get the paperwork ready. I will come and see you in person with the paperwork because I think back to the relationship piece we spoke about that's really important. I think you can be a face behind a computer or you can be a handshake. And I think a handshake, one, people remember it far more. And two, you're far more likely to get referrals out of someone you've actually looked at, eye to eye, you've gone through the paperwork with, you've really made an effort for. We'll then get it into the bank, we'll settle it, and we'll send all the paperwork off to the dealer, or the receipts of payment, everything like that. We'll then go back to the account with all of the tax documents they're going to need eventually, because we know for them that's a huge pain point. Trying to get the documents come, you know, end of financial year, where's my amortisation schedule, where's this, and you know, some people, once they've written the deal, because it's only about the deal, are on to the next one. And once once you're out, you're done. So send all that over to them proactively just so they know what they've got. And then that's it. And then if you look at the other side on the income-generating stuff, concrete pump, those are really important because in that scenario as well, you probably know it's also not the last one they're going to buy. So you don't want to jam them into the the first bank at the risk of then affecting any future deals. So it's important to sort of know, and this is where you can speak to the accountant or any of their advisors, what their, I guess, one, three, five-year plan looks like and make sure that you can set everything up to meet those commitments. Uh, And whether that looks like getting forward contracts, setting up projections, picking the right bank at the right time for where they are is going to help them massively in the future. And again, that's where being a broker comes into it as opposed to being a salesperson. It's not about that one transaction. It's about everything in the future. So going to the accountant, setting it up properly, making sure it's in the right company as well, making sure that they're at the right bank for where their exposure limits are going to be in the future. And I guess looking at, again, through a much longer-term lens of the amount of times we've done one concrete pump for a guy and in three months' time because he's done a good job, he's got a new contract and he needs another one and he needs another one and another one. Yeah, it's often, I need this yesterday. It's a lot of money usually. So making sure you're ready and knowing – and that comes, I guess, through experience, through pattern recognition that you get as you do the job more and more – knowing what's coming next before it happens. So you can set everything up for that client. And I guess you, they're looking in the here and now, so you need to be looking forward to you covering all bases.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting when I hear you go through that, you keep going back to the kind of simple principles and that's what has obviously made you as successful as you are. Preparation, attention to detail, dealing with integrity, building good relationships. These things are not hard things to do, but I think people often neglect the simple stuff. They try to do the fancy stuff. But if you can do this stuff consistently over time, you can end yourself in a very good position.
1: Those are really important to me. And I think it might be a cricket or or a sporting background thing. They're the one percenters. They're the stuff. And I say it in the office all the time. The boys are sick of it. You don't need to be smarter. You don't need to be better looking. You don't need to be better at your job. You just need to do them. You just need to do them. They don't require any talent. They just require you to work hard. And if you keep doing them, you don't get bored. You eventually are going to get where you want to go.
0: My dad always used to say to me growing up, because he was, he was an athlete, successful sportsman, successful people want to do what the unsuccessful people don't want to do. Yeah. What are you willing to do that others aren't? Absolutely. And I think these things, while simple, they're hard to do consistently and and over and over and over and over again. Um, But it compounds. I heard a quote,
1: I heard a quote the other day, which said, what pain are you willing to suffer for the success you want? And if it's this, it's not very hard. Like you just keep doing it. And it's. If, you, if you're willing to do the work, and this is what it looks like, I think if you're willing to do the work and you can do it for long enough without getting bored, you will get to where you want to go. And that's what we keep trying to instill on in our guys in the office and it's what was instilled on us. And it's, it is probably the most important thing that we can say is mm-hmm. just keep doing the small things. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. You will eventually get there. You're never too good to do the little things.
0: How much do you think you've sacrificed?
1: Honestly, not a lot because it's worth doing. I think, um, you know, me, I'm not a big holidayer um, and it's, it may be a little bit because of the way we set the business up at the start when it was just the three of us and a couple of admin guys that if you're not there to answer your phone, someone else will be. And, but for me, it was worth doing, you know, it's, it's, I'm really big on spending money in areas of your life that you want to and not in other areas. And this has allowed me to do those things. So I don't really see the sacrifices, you know, I'm, I'm not a massive drinker. Um, I do enjoy it as you know, but I'm not not (laughs) a big, I'm not a big sort of midweek drinker. I I like my routine. I think it's really important to me. And to me it's not a sacrifice because if you're going to do what everybody else does, you're going to get where everybody else is going. And I think most of the people at Cub are members of Cub purely because that's not what they want. They don't want what everybody else has and they want to do things that others aren't willing to do to get things that other people don't have. And another really great quote I heard the other day was, if you don't sacrifice for what you want, what you want becomes the sacrifice. Mm. And I think when you look at it through that lens it, it it's a bit of a no-brainer.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you find yourself in a cub environment where doing you know these these things that are, are are typically not the norm are the norm. You know, everybody that we're around on a consistent basis is doing these things consistently and so it almost comes to a point where it's like if you're not doing these things, you become the outlier. Um, And I think, you know, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, speaks on, you know, forget about just Cub, but just surrounding yourself with with high quality people in general and and the the importance of that. I can say, you know, throughout my five, almost five years at Cub now, the acceleration of growth because you're being pushed by people who are successful and, and doing the things that we're talking about a consistent basis, you feel like a failure if you're not doing them. And so it, 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 drag, it drags you along. You spoke a little bit about routine there. I know that this is something that's very important to you. Um, talk me through what that looks like and why you think it's so important.
1: I've always wanted to be a 5am club guy and I'm not. I'll, I'll put it right out there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good during the week. Everything I do is, is pretty much week to week, so I don't have to think about it. And I think for me as well, part of the biggest, one of the biggest productivity hacks that I've found for me is if I have a 6 p.m. PT class and I have to be out of the office by five, I am so much more productive during the day. As opposed to, I know that on Tuesdays, I do nothing after work. I'll be in the office till nine o'clock and I'm not doing any more work than I would have done on a Monday or a Thursday when I go to PT. It's, it's all the same amount. But I think for me, having things that I have to leave the office for is really important. Uh, and that really is a nice part of my routine. So I'm up 5.30, 5.45, um, depending on what time I've got to be in the office, I'll try and go for a quick walk in the morning, try and get some sunlight. Uh, and then I'm in the office at seven fifteen probably, and I'll sit at my desk until five if I've got somewhere to go, uh, or, you know, I don't if I don't, uh, and then that's it. So Monday I've got PT, Tuesday I do nothing, Wednesday I see my parents for dinner, which is a really, really important part of my week. I think a really nice part and it's keeps me grounded as well. Cause I'll go in there and start complaining and I'll get slapped down pretty quickly. <laughs> um, which is, which is nice. It's always good to see them. Uh, Thursday I'm at PT and Friday I'm usually out with clients. Uh, and that's Saturday morning, I go for a walk with one of my best friends, 5am Bondi into PT, and then your day's done. Your day's yours. You've had a really good week. And I think for me as well, successful Mondays start on Sundays. So I think Sunday afternoon, trying not to be hungover, going and getting some work done, going and getting out and moving is really, really important. And I know I have better weeks when I do that. So to me, that's sort of, and that routine hasn't changed for three or four years. I, I don't think it will.
0: Yeah, I think I think when you find your flow in that respect, it becomes your anchor. Yep. You know, in reality, and 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 when when you when you don't have that anchor, everything goes out of whack. So yep. um, routine is, is is super important. And I think it
1: it almost doesn't matter what it is as long as it's yours. Agreed. And you have it, and you as you say, you can anchor in it. You can always find it. You can go back to it regardless of what you're doing. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, no, totally agree. You know, whether that's training, whether that's reading a yep. book, whether that's going for a walk, whether that's hanging out with your family, yep. whatever it might be, you need that anchor. Um, particularly when you're dealing with a lot of pressure and stress, it's, it's super important to be able to go back to those things.
1: Yeah. I think if you're all over the place in all of your life, you're going to find it really difficult to focus in one. Whereas if you've got everything else nailed in that regard, it's much easier to deal with, especially in what we do every hour, there's a different curveball. So if you're behind the eight ball and everything else, there's no way you're going to be able to play catch up. But if you've got everything else locked in, then, and there's only one thing that's kind of going all over the place. It's so much easier to deal with it.
0: Mm. I think we've covered a lot here. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think, you know, we speak about this a lot when we we hang out. You're somebody that I've got a lot of respect for. I've watched you progress. You've watched me progress. And I I hope that kind of, you know, continues well into the future. Um, Thank you. Thank you for your time and and for coming on today. Uh, Any closing thoughts from you?
1: Mate, not really. Thank you for everything you do for me and everything that Cub does for me as well. I I think it's been really important to my growth. I think from a, one, making sure I'm in the right room with with the right people, to grounding me a lot. I think that's really important for both of us. I think we do keep each other quite grounded. Um, a few slaps here or there in the clubhouse. <laughs> um, but I'm just, I'm I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that it's allowed me. Uh, and, you know, I'm a huge advocate of it to, to other people. I think that the, you know, if nothing else, the the money we've saved by not doing stupid stuff uh, because other people in the groups have told us not to and they've been there before. But also just the, the friendships and the emotional connections from it, I, I think are worth its weight in gold. And I've got a lot of my really, really, really close friends now I've met through here, uh, and there's no way we would have been in the same room together otherwise. And it's it's a really testament to what you guys do in in relationship building and putting people together that I think you probably don't get thanked enough for. So from, from me, thank you, uh, and long may it last.
0: I really appreciate that. And and obviously, you know, as I said, I hope this continues long, long into the future. Um, People can find you, you know, on your LinkedIn. It's a great follow. A lot of fancy (laughs) cars, a lot of nice watches on there. Um, Some, some good suits as well. So I'm a fan. I think everybody else might be as well. Uh, Obviously your website, Mm -hmm. purecapital.com.au. And this episode will be going up on, on Cub, Dot club slash podcast. You'll have Sam's favorite book. You'll have his favorite quote, some of his favorite lessons in business. Uh, and thanks again for coming, Matt, Thank you for having me.